The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage the great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Hey everybody, this is Pete. I just wanted to jump in real quick and tell you about a mistake I made. I forgot to put the bio for our interview with Dr. Teresa Jones ahead of the actual interview. So I'm gonna put the bio at the beginning of this episode, which kind of works because it is a review of the episode and what we learned when we did interview Dr. Jones. Thanks. New clinicians working in the world of, of stroke recovery need to understand what is too much too soon. And I think she made some good points about it, that early mobility doesn't mean early intensity. So, you know, early mobility really is to get the person up so that other systems in the body don't start to fail them and which would impact negatively impact their recovery. So we keep them healthy while they're still in that acute stage so that when they enter that more subacute phase, they can participate. Teresa A. Jones is a behavioral neuroscientist. Dr. Jones works with rodent models, rats and mice, to understand brain changes involved in learning and stroke recovery and the interaction between learning and stroke recovery. Stroke affects the learning, learning affects recovery. And it was actually more than three decades ago when Dr. Jones was a grad student that she first became intrigued with the possibility of neuronal growth reactions to stroke-like lesions and how they were influenced by behavioral experiences, which they were. That started the line of work on interactions between experience-dependent and injury-induced neuroplasticity that is still her major general focus or obsession. She talks about how the stroke affects the behavior, the behavior then affects the brain 
and recovery, either positively or negatively, and how that cycle just keeps going. Behavior changes the brain, brain changes recovery, which then changes behavior, and around and around we go. She's especially interested in neuroplasticity involved in learning new manual skills and recovery of hand function after stroke. So that's sort of interesting. That would suggest that both healthy models, that is new manual skills, just in you or I, or in her case, rats, but also the recovery of what she calls hand function, but is really forelimb function after an, an induced stroke in a rodent. So Dr. Jones is probably best known for her early work, establishing the experience dependency of neuronal growth responses to stroke. She says that her work in more recent years indicates that the experiences of either hands might compete in shaping patterns of neural remodeling after stroke has received a good deal of attention as well as other work that she has done. You can reach Dr. Jones by email at tj at austin.utexas.edu. In our previous episode of Noggins and Neurons, Pete and I had the good fortune of chatting with Dr. Teresa A. Jones, neuroscientist and researcher. In that conversation, we covered a wide variety of topics. Some of those topics include translating research from bench side to bedside, the importance of communication, some advantages of studying animal models, behavioral changes, and the role they play in stroke outcome, intensity, timing, and potential for harm in the rehab process. We talked about behavioral compensation and how compensation coupled with disuse impedes recovery of more normal movement. We learned about bimanual training in animal models and patterns of synaptic changes that occur across both hemispheres when the animals learn new ways of using the good limb on its own versus together with the affected limb. And finally, we heard Dr. Jones' thoughts on writing, rabbit holes and tangents, and ways to improve communication. So should we start? Probably. I'm going to start with the usual. Hey, Deb Battistella, how you doing? Hey, Pete Levine. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. So we just had an interview with the great Teresa A. Jones, neuroscientist from UT Austin, a behavioral neuroscientist, we we came to find out. And she was eloquent and funny. And I learned a lot. And I th- maybe you did too. And well, we were thinking that maybe it'd be a good idea to just review what she said, because it was so mind-blowing that if we review it, maybe our minds won't be so blown or something. Well, maybe some of it'll stick too. That's true. Repetition. Repetition rules. It sure does. Yeah. What did you learn? Well, first of all, I just have to say that she looks and sounds like and has the demeanor of the person who was my master's project mentor, supervisor, person. Oh, so twins separated at birth kind of a deal? They might have been. They might have been. Yeah. She's she's a, a really nice person. Well, first, I don't I don't know where to start. I mean, 
That so can we talk about the learned non-use article that she brought up, which we had actually talked about that in our learned non-use episode. So in terms of being a clinician and talking to two researchers, I at least felt like I might have kind of understood what was going on here because I I do know about learned non-use and I do know how to find a research article. But it was just a little um, unnerving at the beginning of our conversation, listening to you two talk and me feeling like I have no idea what's going on here. Honestly, Deb, I was unconscious. I had no idea what I was saying. I, you know, you have, you know, I don't want to overstate it. Because I think one of the points she made is, look, we got to be able to talk to each other. Everybody has good ideas. Don't be too intimidated to ask the dumb stuff. Um, but boy, did I feel dumb. Yeah. But you know what? It didn't, did it last long for you? Because you didn't sound dumb at all. You never do. Yeah. I don't know. I was unconscious. That's why (laughs) sometimes you play your best when you're just out of your mind. And that's where I was. I was just like, let's, uh, I hope it came out right. But Yeah, yeah, I do. I did appreciate what she was saying about the communication piece and how we maybe we need to stop feeling small around each other because everybody brings something important to the table. And when maybe we need to stop also feeling or believing that some of us are better than others in all of this, because the conversation, I thought it was a great conversation and it's an important conversation. And she brought up the importance of communicating among all parties and disciplines so that uh, progress can be made. Yeah. It w- it's not just an ego thing. It's like we can help patients if we're willing to talk to these basic scientists, rehabilitation research scientists, and clinicians, and all get in the same room. And she said it was getting a little bit better because there was more and more conferences that brought all three together. It reminded me a little bit of the story I told you about David Ince and Ed Taub meeting randomly in a Macy's during Christmas and their wives were doing something. And they started this conversation, which led to the first iteration of humans doing constraint-induced therapy. Well, that what, what are the chances that a clinician there and a basic scientist would get together at a toy table in a Macy's in Brooklyn. So, so she's saying things are getting better, but, but even within that context, even when you're in these, and you, you go to these uh, conferences too, it's a, it can be a little intimidating, you know, to, to speak. It can out. be a lot intimidating. Well, I think she brought up the point too, about the questions, asking the stupid questions, which I don't really think there are any stupid questions, but um, I feel like I have stupid questions sometimes, and I will hold back from asking, especially if there's a room full of people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Been there, done that. Shut up. Mm-hmm. And then you go home with all these questions and you wonder what to do with what you just learned. So what was the most mind-blowing thing that she talked about, in your opinion? Oh, that's an easy one, Deb. They put a window on the skull of rodents that were genetically modified. So they had a synaptic connection when there was an actual connectivity between turn neurons, it would light up in bright green and glow green. And she's got a window onto neuroplasticity. Literally that's was mind blowing. That was really, <laughs> that was really cool. I what, what the <laughs> crap? How come I don't know about this stuff? 
Shit, they, they put a window on ringing brain of these animals that glow. <laughs> I imagine they glow in the dark. They must glow in the they gotta turn the lights down, right? That yeah, was so you crazy. can really see. That is crazy. That's a whole different world. Yeah, too bad she didn't invite us to her lab. <laughs> well, maybe after next time she will. Maybe, maybe, well, you know, maybe she'll listen to this and just invite us. <laughs> well, probably. We'll go down to Sixth Street, we'll see some bands. <laughs> um, let's see what else was kind of mind blowing. Anything else that was mind blowing? I thought it, w- it was great the way she talked about neuroscience. So I've mentioned before that neuroscience as a discipline didn't happen in universities uh, until the seventies, I think is what I said. Um, or no, I think I said the nineties and I think it started earlier than that. Amherst had a school, a neuroscience that was dedicated to, you know, spitting out neuroscientists. Um, I don't know if they had a PhD program right off the bat, but they had a, at least a bachelor's level. But she was early and she said, there were no women. And because I was a woman and I felt like they felt like I was dumb, I could ask the dumb questions and there was no harm, no foul. She's not dumb. No. And she asks, I almost said, because she's blonde. I almost said, yeah, and you're blonde too. So I was like, <laughs> I really think you're dumb. I don't know if she's going to invite us now, Pete. Yeah, that probably wouldn't work. But she's not She's not a dumb blonde. And I think, you know, as dumb as men are, I think they probably pricked up really quickly that these weren't dumb questions she was asking. They were probably pretty well thought out. But I thought that whole dynamic of being early in neuroscience and having to deal with a male-dominated environment, but that somehow gave her an advantage is exactly what resilient people do, right? I mean, they they find this challenge and then they find this loophole in the challenge and they use it. Well, exactly. So the fact that she's a neuroscientist, behavioral psychologist as well, to me, they, they should go together. But wait a second. Isn't the mind separate from what the body experiences? I don't know. Is it? Is the mind separate from the brain? Is the brain separate from the mind and the body? No, it's not. Exactly. It's, it's nature and it's nurture. And the behavioral part, I think, is nurture, isn't it? Or is it, I, is, can we not even separate that? I don't think you can really separate that. I did think it was pretty interesting when she was talking about the behavioral aspect because it's quite circular. And while she was talking, I was thinking about what I read in the TBI groups that I'm in on Facebook. And there's, it, it seems like a lot of people, who experience brain injuries when they have those changes to their personality where they don't recognize the their own behavior and they lack that insight, then that's, to me, where a real challenge comes for them and for their friends and family. Now, that may be because of what she was talking about, because she was talking about the stroke changes behavior. The behavior then changes the brain which then changes the behavior. And that's the circular thing. But there may also be damage to internal structures that, oh, the frontal lobe is a good example that controls behavior and maybe they're not so controlled. So it may be just the infarct hit it, but it may also be this sort of rebirth day of the mm-hmm. person's brain that they're, they're, they have a new brain and they're trying to get figure out how it works. Yeah. The new normal, they call it. It's tough. It's really tough for people. I thought it was sort of interesting even before we start talking to her, she doubled down on the fact, look, I am a basic scientist. I work with rodents. How much of this is translatable to humans? I have no idea. But then she gave us really good insight 
into exactly when it is translatable. Like the idea that if you do too much too soon, you can make the infarct worse. I was glad that her and I saw eye to eye with that. And, uh, and so that's a great example of the way that animal research can give you insight into humans. I mean, I, I sort of came up with this analog and this is kind of dumb, but you, you want to do market research on, on ice cream and you have 56 flavors, but you can only produce two flavors or one flavor. You want to know what the best flavor is. You can get a bunch of humans to taste test this stuff, but humans are, they're hard to get into the lab and they're, you know, it, I have a couple of friends that are food scientists. It's always this big McGill and you try to get people to test and you're never really sure. But imagine- Wow, if, if it was for ice cream, I'm pretty sure that would be easy to show up for. Yeah, sometimes it's beer. I mean, I have oh. one food scientist friend worked for Sam Adams forever. I mean, that has to be a great job because they're testing yeah. stuff all the time. But let, imagine if you, you got a bunch of crab-eating macaques to do some of the initial work and you find out immediately- that they almost always go for the chocolate and they go there quicker than any other flavor. They'll eat it all, but they'll go for the chocolate first. Well, you can then make this assumption that with humans, chocolate as well may be the first flavor that you want to introduce, but you still have to do the human testing. And I think that was her reluctance was that just because we're pretty sure something might work, don't assume that it does work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then she talked about that uh, research the research that you two were talking about in the very very beginning, where the um, the details from the animal model failures were things that then were retested and somehow that wasn't communicated properly. But I mean, lack of communication or miscommunication happens. That's just kind of part of being human, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I will link in the show notes is her talk on YouTube, where she's talking clearly to other neuroscientists or high-level scientists of some sort. And all of a sudden, the nomenclature is just like way over my head. And But she talked about how in that brain implantation study, the one that you're talking about, this was a company called North Star Neuroscience. That's what brought it into human populations. But understand, she she worked with Randy Nudo. It's one of the the big names in neuroscience Everybody always talks about this guy when they talk about neuroplasticity. He isn't the first guy who figured it out. I would argue that Carl Lashley, a Brit, did it in you know the 1940s or whatever it was. But he was the first to show massive migration of brain plasticity in animals, given brain injury followed by training or training and then brain injury and then more training or whatever it was. So she said they got weird things wrong, like how big the electrode should be, what hertz the e-stim should be on, or what milliamperage it should be. I forget which it was. She made it sound in the talk like they had rushed from animal research into humans too quickly. Mm. I mean, I felt like talking to her about what my complaint with, the, with that study was, which was that the guy who was training for the Fugelmeyer, the, I think it was the action research arm test, she said, the arm motorability test was done as well. That guy didn't have very much experience with the what we call the Brunstrom Fugelmeyer, which was the primary outcome measure. And he didn't know what he was doing. Mm. So I, I think some of the data they collected wasn't great. And I used to email the guy and go, I don't, I think the elbow has to be locked. You know, these like nuancey things, but can change it, shift the scores by six points. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference between a failed trial and a successful trial. Oh, often. wow. Yeah. 
So another discussion for another day and a little bit in the weeds. We asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and whether or not people donate, are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that? That's true. Um, and we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address? I do. It's at Neurons. At Neurons. That's pretty simple. It is. And it's in our title. So if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this and we want to keep it going. And, uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. And yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the... The Brain Injury Association of America? That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment. It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it. Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons. Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. That's true. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. What else did we learn from Dr. Jones? Well, going back to what you mentioned before with too much, but I'm kind of glad that that came up again, because if it keeps coming up, that it still is a concern for some people. And we're always going to have new clinicians working in the world of, of stroke recovery who need to understand what is too much too soon. And I think that, um, yeah, I just think she brought, she made some good points about it. That early mobility doesn't mean early intensity. So, you know, early mobility really is to get the person up so that other systems in the body don't start to fail them and which would impact negatively impact their recovery. So we keep them healthy while they're still in that acute stage so that when they enter that more subacute phase, they can participate. Yeah. And she was real good about saying you don't have to be intensive, but you should integrate that side as soon as possible. And it doesn't have to be a constraint on the unaffected side. It can just be some gentle 
Hey, let's see if it does it move today. What's going on in the shoulder? Can you shrug your shoulders? It's basic stuff for the upper and lower extremity because you want those neurons as they're coming back online to go back to exactly what they're good at, which is the thing that they've been doing for the last 50 years mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, clinicians always sort of get weird about this where it's like, well, how do I tell if it's too much? But in the first semester in school, you learn this stuff. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. you know, basic things like uh, allow for lots of rest. If you're in acute care, you can look up at the monitor and say, what's, why is the, you know, pulse rate spiking right now? Well, because it's too much. You know, you could look at blood pressure, but you could look at facial expressions. And you could also say, look, this is going to be a 45-minute treatment bedside. Let me just take my time here and give him tons of rest and see if he can move a little bit here, a little bit there. That's what she's talking about. As the person's coming back online, you're capturing those neurons. Yeah, there's really, there's no rush. And and even when you do have that person who wants to do a lot, they can't anyways. They're too they're too constrained by all of the IV lines and other lines that they might have attached to them. Plus, therapists have their own productivity standards, so they're going to cut that short. But if the physiatrist or neurologist is putting pressure on you to, to do a lot right now, which they often do, and I used to hear about these complaints from therapists all the time, like, what do I tell this physiatrist? Tell him he's wrong. You know, That's probably a good start. But you, you talked about something, which is a lot of times they're impulsive and they want to go. And so sometimes it's a, it's a sort of, uh, what is it? An alternator or a regulator on that impulse to, okay, I'm, I got hit by this thing. Now I'm going to get it back now. That, that could be a problem as well. Cause then mm-hmm. they go, they do too much too soon and, uh, and they can make the infarct worse. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of a tough conversation to have with people sometimes because you don't like, I never intended to scare anyone. I just really wanted them to understand. I wonder if this is where the caregiver can come in and say, you know, he, you know, this guy was a wrestler. He coached wrestling. If you say go, he's going to go, you know, even if he's aphasic, he's going to get the idea. Um, And then the caregiver can, can help be a a mitigator of this, this stuff. I know they're not always around, but when they are. Yeah. Yeah. It is nice to have an understanding of what somebody was doing before they come to the hospital with an event like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you know, if for no other reason, you're trying to engage the mind, not just the brain. It's not just mm-hmm. about getting neurons back. It's also getting a sense of what's going to motivate this person when those neurons really start to rush back online. That BDNF is really in there and the brain is primed and ready to relearn. And as Dr. Jones pointed out, just in this incredible rebirth day, this rebirthing of the brain, it's in such flux that you can really do really great things. And I would imagine pretty bad things like learn non-use. Mm-hmm. You know what? Like I, I was talking about how I felt like I was unconscious for a lot of that talk. <laughs> I screwed up where she spent part of her childhood in. She, she corrected me and I was like, what is she talking about? So there's these three towns, four towns, like it's Summit, New Providence, Berkeley Heights, and Chatham. All of these are bedroom communities directly west from Manhattan, and they all have direct train lines right into the heart of the city. So I got, I got the wrong town. I said it was New Providence. It was actually Berkeley Heights, which is also contiguous with the town that my parents owned a house in forever. So that was kind of weird that I just kind of screwed that up. That's on our Wikipedia page. That's how I found that. Oh, she did look a little puzzled. 
as to how you would know this information. Yeah. She doesn't know you. <laughs> yeah, because I'm willing to creep. I'm willing to be a creep. <laughs> Didn't we talk about this with Doro and um, yeah, and Lynette that it's not creepiness; it's curiosity, and we're just good at our jobs. Mm-hmm. It's all part of the detective it. piece of like a chart review. It's a people review. Yeah, it's like a chart review, but online of somebody who doesn't expect you to. Well, look, she has a Wikipedia page. I bet she could have it taken down. It's up there for a reason, so that people kind of know. Mm-hmm. So I do hope she comes back, though. I do, too. The other part of our conversation with her that I thought was interesting was the part about compensation. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what did you get out of that? No, I found out that compensation is mistaken for recovery. And then she just went on to expand that a little bit and how sometimes it, it is good to compensate because it allows a person to be more functional and engage more independently in life. But sometimes if they're compensating too much, then they're not making the recovery that they could make. And it, she did seem to allude to the fact that many people could make a greater recovery, but they kind of stop before they get there. I probably should have asked more about that. Yeah. I just heard a thousand therapists yelling at their podcast, maybe a thousand if we're lucky. Why do you say if they do it too much, Deb, how much is too much? There is no answer to these questions. Even Dr. <laughs> Jones came, said that a few times, like, we don't know this yet. It's the 86 billion neurons and a quadrillion synapses. Give us a chance. You know, everybody expects this sort of godlike something with regard black and to white. science. Yeah, they want this white. black and white thing. Like, I get it from students all the time. They want this black and white thing. And I just tell them. This, the therapy world is not black and white. You have to know some of these things and be able to make decisions based on what you know to be true and what you're seeing in the moment. And it does require thinking. So I'm going to encourage you to think and tell me what you think. But then they always tell me what they think I want to hear. So it doesn't really help you in the field if that's how you go through school. Well, now we've come full circle because we started out with this where um, Teresa Jones was talking about how, you know, sometimes we're too reluctant to ask questions and put our ideas out there. And yet, you know, you do have 86 billion neurons and you are a student. You were accepted into the program. We expect you to be able to think for yourself. And you can take some comfort in the fact that science doesn't have all the answers either. Yeah. So, you know, don't make it up. But I bet. If a student comes to you, Deb, and says, I think that they should be doing mirror therapy very acutely, and we should lay a mirror on their belly in the bed, and we should have them do it with weights on their more affected side. You would say, why do you think that? Well, we, th- we know that weight, you know, and they would give you the justification. You go, I, I disagree, and you probably shouldn't do that, and you'll probably fail your clinical, but, but good thinking. Don't worry about it. <laughs> We don't have the answers, and who knows? Maybe that's the best thing. The struggle against the weight is the big X factor. Yeah. Probably not. Don't do that, kids. Yeah, probably not. What about when she was talking about the synapses? I know that you were fascinated with the windows in the brains, but the other part of that (laughs) was when she was talking about the little spines on the dendrites. Yeah. Yeah. 
like it was pretty cool to hear her talk about neuroplasticity being more than just brain activity. It's actual changes in the structure of the neurons. Oh, yeah. And I think there's also changes in the neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of molecules that flow through the synaptic connections. I don't know much about it, but it's this whole field of neuroscience where they just look at those molecules and how the soup changes from instant to instant. Yeah, I think sometimes we we maybe oversimplify it a little bit, but we don't, I mean, we're not neuroscientists, so we don't know all of those things, but those minute aspects can lead to big change. Yeah, they can. You know what I learned today looking up, doing what? some research for this? So it turns out that I think we talked about on this podcast, because I'm a vegetarian. I know that you are interested in animal welfare as well. And we just talked to an animal yeah. researcher. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happened because of COVID, there were so many monkeys used in the development of the various immunizations that we ran out of monkeys. Oh. Now, there was, this, um, there was this movement. And I think by 2035, they were going to phase out all mammals and monkeys first. This is what I remember. Don't quote me on that. But then COVID hits, right? And now there's not enough monkeys. So now they're trying to figure out how, how are we going to get more monkeys to be born and to reach maturity so we can test them for the Delta variant and the variant coming from oh, Egypt and the one coming from India. And, and so there's going to be a shortage of monkeys. And they really did help us. I forget what my point was. Um, Something that you learned today. Yeah, we don't have enough monkeys. That's what I learned. <laughs> you know, and I kept thinking, why don't they go to Thailand? They're crawling all over the place in Thailand. Just scoop them up and bring them. But they're, they don't travel well, apparently. That's part of the problem. Oh. Um, but yeah. Can I just read a sentence from one of her articles? Mm-hmm. And this is why I didn't read much of her articles, because I was like, oh, my gosh. The photothrombotic stroke model aims to induce an ischemic damage within a given cortical area by means of photoactivation of a previously injected light-sensitive dye. Following illumination, the dye is activated and produces singlet oxygen that damages components of the endothelial cell membranes with subsequent platelet aggregation and thrombi formation, which eventually determines the interruption of local blood flow. How about them apples? That's a big, long sentence to so tell us that. this is the way they give them an infarct. They yeah. inject this dye stuff that then takes away the oxygen and, and uh, destroys the endothelial cells. And, uh, and then there's this platelet aggregation, which is basically a stroke. So it's that kind of stuff. What else was she? Oh, and there was something else. And I forgot to ask her about this. There's something called, it's like vascular plasticity that the blood vessels Gosh, no, I can think of other things I should ask her. So vascular plasticity mean, means that the blood vessels respond to the new metabolic activity that's happening because of neuroplasticity. The other thing that's really important, and I bet she knows a thing or two about this. Do you remember glial cells in the brain? Mm-hmm. They were literally, I, I tutored anatomy physiology for a few years in college, and all they were were the structure. It was almost like the matrix in which the neurons operate, but that's all they did. Well, apparently they're communicating as well. And there's this plasticity that happens with them as well. So you have three entities changing radically through this plastic environment. It's not just the neurons. She also talked about, and this is something that 
folks sometimes don't understand about the brain, about the way that there's sort of diaschesis. The brain doesn't work as the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere or the parietal versus the uh, occipital. I mean, they're all working together and it's it's these waves of neuronal activity that flows all over the brain. It's not quite as uh, as fenced in or cordoned off. And this is why plasticity, long-term plasticity can happen and bleed over into other areas, sometimes on the wrong side of the brain, the ipsilateral side. I seem to think that I read something about that. And I was it in the, um, the bimanual paper that she wrote? I mean, I read three of these articles today. You can't expect me to remember where I found this information, despite massive note-taking. Yeah, we don't expect that. I didn't really understand what she was saying about bimanual training, because I think I mentioned this, I was pretty much unconscious the whole time. <laughs> so, so I didn't really catch it, but here's the good thing. We have it recorded. So I'll be able to go back and, and figure out what the heck she was talking about. But there, there were advantages, I think, and disadvantages to bimanual training. The advantages was that the good side trains the bad side. I think we sort of talked about that. She also seemed to intimate that maybe the bad side, the good side does a little bit worse to match the bad side. Did you get that or was did I misinterpret that? I think that I went a little bit unconscious when she was talking about that. So I do need to listen to that piece again. Okay, let's ignore it. Did yeah, you have but, something else you want to say? Because we probably shouldn't talk about it if we're both unconscious. No. That's not good. Think, well, yeah, I don't remember what she said. You can cut that part out. I think we'll leave it just for the hilarity. <laughs> See, Dr. Jones, you, you made us unconscious. Somehow you put the voodoo on us. <laughs> we can think straight. You blew a gasket or two. You know, we're both older than she is. So, I know, I mean, she and she's, in, oh, she I'm a woman of saying, a certain I, age. I don't understand podcasts because I'm too old. It's like, you have no idea. I know. It's going to get worse. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Well, she's not, a, you know what I loved about her instantly is that she's not on Facebook. What? She said, I don't have a Facebook. I don't have a Facebook. That's so cute that she thinks it's a Facebook that you have. <laughs> oh, it's like, child. oh, you are. I mean, such an adult. <laughs> I know, right? Well, I guess that means she won't be joining our noggins and neurons group. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Dang. I know. Hey, hey, yeah, kids, don't hoping. forget, join our noggins and neurons Facebook group. Um, we want to have well, what a party. A party. We want to have a party. Well, yeah, a little Facebook party or something. Yep. It's going to be clinicians talking to students, talking to caregivers, talking to us, talking to the podcast. We express it on the podcast because we learn some stuff from the Facebook group. We uh, discuss on the Facebook group stuff we learned in the podcast. And it's going to be a whole hoot nanny. Yeah, hoot nanny. It's going to be hoot nanny. It's going to be a hoot. <laughs> Yeah, that must be from your Texas days. Um, yeah, there were some Texas days, man. Austin was such a different town back when she was an undergrad there, right? Um, mm -hmm. I literally, like, now it's, it, you know, there's the Google building and there's the Microsoft building and there's construction everywhere. And, you know, the, the big thing back in Austin back in the day was keep Austin weird. Oh. Well, it's not weird. It's just overrun now and it's expensive. It, it's still got a high quality life, but I remember times the main drag there is, well, one of the main drags is called Sixth Street 
And I literally saw a tumbleweed <laughs> go down one of the side streets off the of sixth street. That's how mm. empty it could be. Now it's just traffic, wall-to-wall traffic. Mm. It's, it's a tough environment, but uh, still a great, great town. My son wants to move to Texas. It has its, it has its charms. Oh, where is he thinking about? I don't know. He just told me the other day. He just wants to try it. Yeah. I mean, my sister lives in Houston, and she lives just off the campus of Rice University, and it's uh, amazing. I mean, it's a cornucopia of restaurants and museums and all kinds of stuff to do and great, great Mexican food. The best Tex-Mex I've ever tasted, and this has happened to me multiple times, is in Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. You would think it would be down near Brownsville or near, near the border someplace. I think Houston's got it. Hmm. Look well, at us. Yeah. We're a travel log and a, a discussion group about the brain. <laughs> Imagine that. Texas, y'all. Yeah. Anything else? stood out for you in your unconscious state no no (laughs) i'm gonna cut that but there was about a minute and a half pause between (laughs) got anything else and no 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 so um yeah so should we sign off let these kids go back to their uh to their olymp watching the olympics yeah we probably should okay well that was fun that was fun okay thanks everyone oh wait oh wait we got something no, we don't have anything. <laughs> oh, that gave me a cramp. Thanks a lot. Okay. You're welcome. We'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.